Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Peter Schiff Show. Another day, another all-time record high for all three of the major U.S. stock market indices, the Dow, the S&P, and the NASDAQ, all making new and closing at new highs. The dollar, on the other hand, going the other way, the dollar is surrendering some of the gains that it I think, achieved based on some of the optimism surrounding the, uh, the tax cuts. Uh, the dollar index, I think, at one point a couple of days ago was uh, north of 94, about 94.30. We're now a full point below that. Dollar barely hanging on to a 93-handle gold up for the second day in a row. You know, at one point today near the highs, gold was up about 18, 19 bucks over the two days because it was up about nine yesterday and about that much this, this morning. But we couldn't hold on to all those gains. I think gold only finished up three or four bucks, still about a $10, $12 rather move up in the price of gold in the first two days of this week. I mentioned this on my podcast over the weekend. I saw that divergence on Friday with gold going lower and closing higher and the dollar going higher and closing lower, I said they both indicated a likely change of trend or short-term trend. And so far, it looks like that that observation uh, was right on the money because thus far, that's exactly what has been happening. You know, gold stocks didn't react very much, though, to the gain in gold. Gold stocks were up a little bit yesterday, but they were down about the same amount today. So really a push uh, for gold stocks in the face of this $12 uh, move up in the price of gold, although gold is still hanging out below 1300 and the renewed weakness in the dollar. And again, I think part of the renewed weakness in the dollar has to do with the idea that maybe all these tax cuts aren't going to pass, that this Republican plan or the Trump plan that was outlined uh, some days ago, that it's going to have a hard time getting through Congress. But, of course, even if it does get through Congress, and even if it's enacted, it is not going to deliver the economic growth 
that is being advertised. But, you know, if you go back to the origins of all the Republican talk about tax reform, they actually wanted to do reform. I mean, all the reform is out the window now. All we have is tax cuts masquerading as reform. But the initial concept that the Republicans had was to try to move towards a consumption-based tax system. Now, they tried to do that through the back door with the the BAT, the border-adjusted tax, because they wanted to pretend that that was a tax on business as opposed to a tax on consumers, which is what it really was. But the BAT wasn't going to work, and I went over a lot of reasons why it wasn't going to work on this podcast. What they should have talked about was a national sales tax or a national value-added tax. That would have been a lot more effective than the BAT, but of course, the public would have understood that that was a tax on them, that that wasn't a tax on business, that was a tax on consumers. Now, of course, the the border-adjusted tax was also a tax on consumers, it just was a roundabout way of doing it because the tax fell on businesses who would then pass it on to consumers, but most consumers don't connect those very obvious dots. But the minute that whole thing fell apart, the minute we no longer had the consumption component, that part of tax reform, there was no more tax reform because by taxing consumption, that was going to allow taxes on income and production to go down. That was going to allow cuts in the corporate tax and, in fact, even cuts in the personal income tax because what the government was getting based on the consumption tax, they could give up based on the production tax or the income tax, and that was going to be a more efficient tax system because there is an economic truism that you get more of what you subsidize and less of what you tax. Well, if you tax production and work, the more you tax it, the less of it you're going to get. You don't want to get less production and work if you want economic growth. You want more of that. So you want to reduce the the taxes on work and production. And what we have too much of is consumption. That's what we have to uh, have less of. We need more savings and investment. And to finance that, we need less consumption. So if we tax consumption and, and tax production and work less, we would have more economic growth. We would you know, bend the incentive curves. So that was going to generate growth. But the growth aspects are gone if we don't have that switch, if we don't move from taxing income to taxing consumption. And now also, of course, the idea is to give tax relief without blowing up the deficit. Well, you can't do that unless you're going to find uh, tax increases to offset the tax cuts unless you're willing to cut government spending, which, of course, is what they should be doing. But nobody wants to cut government spending. It's amazing that you have these politicians that want to give a tax cut to everyone but don't want to give a spending reduction to anyone. They don't want to take away anybody's benefits. They don't want to tell one person who's getting a government check, that they're not going to get that check. Or they don't want to tell one person who's getting a government check that they're going to get a check, but it's going to be for a smaller amount. Well, if you're not cutting anyone's benefits, how are you going to cut everyone's taxes? It's impossible unless you're going to make the deficit much bigger. But now you have the Republicans saying we want to cut taxes, but we don't want to increase the deficit. Well, that's impossible if you're not going to have the consumption tax or you're not going to have uh, big cuts in in government spending. In fact, one of the big problems 
with what the Republicans have in fact proposed is that there's no doubt that there are major tax cuts for the rich in this plan. And there are large tax cuts or tax cuts for the working poor. So if you have a job and you don't earn much money, but you pay income taxes, you're going to pay less. If you earn a lot of money, you're also going to pay less. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means a lot of people in the middle are going to have to pay more. And they're going to pay more. Some people in the middle are going to pay less. But a lot of people are going to pay more. I mean, A, we don't even know how much more because they haven't even set the brackets. But if you're going to give tax cuts to the rich and the poor and you're not going to have a massive deficit, then you've got to give tax hikes to the middle class, which is the opposite of what the Republicans are promising, which is tax relief for the middle class. That's not what they're delivering. A lot of people are going to get tax increases. And of course, part of the problem, though, is some of the increases have to do with the elimination of the deductibility of your state and local taxes. But I mentioned on one of my earlier podcasts that the states can get around this, right? States that currently have income taxes that are paid by workers can repeal those income taxes and replace them with payroll taxes paid by employers. Those employers would be able to fully deduct those payroll taxes from their income taxes. And so you would just change the nature of the tax, but the effect would be the same. The worker uh, would have his income but he would be able to deduct the tax that he pays locally through his employer. He would get paid less money for working, but that reduction would include the taxes that were paid on his behalf. So in other words, the states have a way around this. They can change who the tax falls on so that they can, they can preserve the deductibility of their local taxes. But I think a lot of the deduction comes from income taxes. And so if the states react the way I think they would, to the loss of this deduction, the government is not going to reap all of the tax windfall that it's planning. So in other words, the deficits will end up being much bigger than the ones they're contemplating because they won't get as much of a windfall from the elimination of this deduction because states will change their taxation system so as to preserve the deductibility, just shifting the payment from the employer to the employee. But at the end of the day, it doesn't even look like this is going to pass because now you have a lot of senators or representatives that don't want to sign on to a tax cut that raises taxes on any of their constituents. I mean, they don't want anybody having higher taxes. They want everybody to get a tax cut. Well, how are you going to do that? How are you going to cut everybody's income taxes and not cut spending on anything without having a huge increase in the deficit, which, of course, is what's going to happen. Now, you can try to assume that some of that increase isn't there because of dynamic scoring. You can assume that your tax cuts are going to lead to economic growth. Well, maybe they will. But you know what? I think regardless, we're going to have a recession because there is no recession in anybody's forecast. Right? Nobody thinks a recession is coming at any point during the next 10 years, whether we cut taxes or not. And I think whether we cut them or not, we're going to have a recession. So the recession is coming regardless of whether taxes are cut. And if there is a recession, you can throw all this dynamic scoring out the window. I mean, even if the recession is not as severe as a result of the tax cuts as it would have been had taxes not been cut, the result is still going to be huge increases in the budget deficit. 
So these numbers are completely wrong, but I think some of the congressmen now are starting to question this, and now the Trump is they're losing some Republican support, and they pretty much need unanimous support. Otherwise, they have to reach across the aisle and get the Democrats, and there's no way the Democrats are going to sign on to the tax cuts if they have all these big tax cuts for the rich. So the only way the Democrats are going to support this is if they take away the tax cuts for the rich. Well, if they take away the tax cuts on corporations, they take away the reduction in the marginal rate of tax, then you lose any hope of economic stimulus coming from the tax cuts because that is where the stimulus comes from. The stimulus doesn't come from just cutting taxes on lower-income people or middle-income people. Real economic stimulus comes from more capital investment, more job creation, you know, more investment, more underconsumption. That is what you get when you reduce marginal taxes on the people with the highest propensity to save and invest. The Keynesians have it backwards because they think stimulus comes from consumption. It doesn't. Consumption doesn't stimulate anything. Consumption without production just leads to higher prices, which is what is going to happen. We are going to get more inflation. In fact, looking at what's happening with commodities, you can see across the board how commodities are strengthening. You know, oil is starting to build some support above $50 a barrel. You know, we're up about $51 a barrel. Other commodities are moving up. Commodity-sensitive stocks are moving up. Emerging markets that benefit from rising commodity prices, they're moving up. So the whole world, they're, they're calling it reflation, right? On Wall Street, they kind of bland it reflation as if somehow putting a re instead of flation uh, is better than if you say inflation. But what reflation really is, is inflation. They're trying to make something bad sound like something good, right? We all know inflation is bad, but reflation, well, that, that sounds pretty good, right? We're, we're reflating something that deflated. But what they really are talking about is inflation. It is an inflation trade. It is not a reflation trade. And inflation is not good for the U.S. economy. It's not going to be good for workers. Uh, and it's ultimately not going to be good for the stock market because it's going to lead to higher real interest rates and it's going to diminish uh, corporate earnings. But of course, as bad as inflation is for the stock market, it is going to be much worse for the bond market. I mean, that's where the biggest losses are going to be. It's going to be on holders of U.S. bonds. Oh, by the way, I wanted to remember to mention that we are doing tomorrow the webinar, the quarterly webinar that I do for managed account customers at Euro-Pacific uh, Capital. And so if you are a client of ours, and you do have a managed account or a wrap account, or even maybe if you're interested in one of these accounts, but you don't quite have one yet, make sure and participate in that webinar. I do two of them. I forget the exact times. I think one is in the afternoon tomorrow and one is in the evening. So you've got no excuse. If you're at work, you can participate in the evening webinar. And if you're not at work, if you're retired, you know you can listen to the morning one or you can do, you can do both. They're both going to be live. None of them are scripted, and none of them are recorded. So if you don't listen live, you can't listen. And I do take questions at the end of each webinar. So I would suggest everybody contact your Europe Pacific Capital broker tomorrow morning uh, and get the exact instructions and the time so that you can participate in the quarterly webinar. You know, we've had seven really good quarters uh, beginning the first quarter of 2015, but I believe that this is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to what's coming. I think this is a small down payment on the gains that are going to compound 
as the air comes out of what I believe is the mother of all U.S. dollar bubbles. And I want to make sure that, that people understand the, 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 what's at stake here and the gravity of, uh, of the returns that I believe are coming. And also, you know, a lot of people are moving into the U.S. stock market and people are not very uh, cognizant of the risks. I mean, people are very quick to forget history. To, to forget how quickly the stock market can be cut in half, and a lot of that is the, a lot of that complacency is because the last two times the market was cut in half, um, the Fed was able to prop it back up. Well, as I said in my last podcast, I don't think they're going to make it a hat trick. Right? I don't think they're going to do three in a row. It's not third times a charm. It's three strikes you're out. So I want to make sure that people who are investing in the U.S. stock market realize that they're playing with fire. And that there's much better risk-reward dynamics going on internationally. That's where the value is. Getting out of the dollar, getting into commodities, getting into emerging markets. There is tremendous upside potential in the strategies that we have relative to the downside risk. The opposite is true in the U.S. You've really got limited upside potential in real terms. And you've got massive downside risk. Yet that's what the public is signing up for. People you know, are, are, are you know, bending over in backwards or tripping over each other to, to funnel money into the U.S. stock market. And in general, they're doing it the worst possible way. They're not even trying to find the value in the market. They're simply buying the index funds. They're buying the most overpriced stocks in the most overpriced market in the most overpriced currencies. So uh, people are setting themselves up for a major fall, and they really have no idea. So make sure and tune in uh, to, uh, to my webinar. You know, also, you know, these fires that are now blazing in California, mostly in northern California, but also in Orange County, too. In Anaheim, there's a fire, but most of it is in uh, Napa Valley, Sonoma. But, I mean, at 1,500 or more homes or businesses, hotels, restaurants, just burned to the ground. I mean, look at some of these photos. It's apocalyptic. I mean, these houses burned down. The only thing that's left in some cases are the chimneys. But everything around them is, is ashes. And, you know, obviously you have to feel very sorry for the people who lived in those homes because everything is lost. Hopefully, you know, they were evacuated. They got their photos out or some, you know, pictures or paintings or whatever their cherished possessions were that they really didn't want to, to lose. But obviously, you know, you, there's only so much you can fit in your car, you know, and you're trying to get out of the way of these fires. And, these, you know, these houses are completely gone and everything that is inside them is gone. So not to minimize the personal loss, but just to talk about it again from an economic perspective, this is more bad news for the U.S. economy. I mean, look at all these hurricanes that hit this year. Now we got these fires. There are huge costs here. You know, and even if all these houses are insured, well, the insurance companies are going to take the hit. Where's the money going to come from? And then the insurance companies have to raise their rates because now they have to replenish all the capital that they just lost paying out claims. These are major negatives for an economy that is already weak. And nobody wants to even discuss that. I mean, if anything, it's all about, well, you know, this is going to pick up the economy because they have to rebuild all these houses. Yeah, let's all break our windows so we can repair them. Broken windows is not the key to economic growth. Now, no, it is possible that in some of the areas, there could be more economic growth because of all the rebuilding, but that has to be paid for by other parts of the country, 
where resources are going to be diverted. But of course, the people who live in houses that got destroyed, they're not better off because they have to rebuild what they lost. I mean, this is a very difficult process. But clearly, even if there are some people who benefit from construction jobs that they may not have had, there are other people who suffer because they lose jobs that they no longer have because the resources have been diverted into construction. And of course, if people are spending money rebuilding what they lost, they're not spending that money on buying something new that they never had. And so the people who are going to be involved in that process, well, they lose their jobs because now people who would have had money to buy certain things don't have that money anymore because they have to rebuy things that they lost in a hurricane or in a, in a fire. So none of this is a positive for the economy. And it's not happening at a good time because we're already weighed down with all sorts of other economic problems late in this expansion, right? This is, again, one of the oldest or longest-lived economic expansions in U.S. history, though it's required the greatest amount of monetary and fiscal stimulus uh, to produce it, right? It's still been the weakest uh, recovery on record. And I've been saying all along, if you thought the recovery was weak, wait till you get a load of the next recession. Because if this is all we can get in good times, imagine what's in store for us in bad times. And, you know, the size of this, uh, this, this uh, hangover is going to be proportionate to the amount of partying we did to produce it, right? We took record amounts of monetary stimulus during this so-called recovery. And so now we're going to have the mother of all hangovers when it wears off and to the point that the, the Federal Reserve is going to be forced to try to shoot us up with such an enormous amount of stimulus to combat this that we're going to overdose. I, I don't think there is an amount of stimulus that's going to work because the amount that will be required is so big that the stimulus itself is going to kill us. And that death is going to be in a currency crisis, right? a dollar crisis, and then a sovereign debt crisis. That is where we're headed. While I'm talking about these natural disasters, I want to get back to Puerto Rico because for a while, you know, it looked like maybe Trump was going to do the right thing when it came to the Jones Act because after initially resisting, he agreed to this 10-day suspension of the, of the Jones Act. Well, that expired the other day. I think Sunday it expired and he did not extend it. And the word is now that it won't be extended. So now... You know, in addition to having to deal with the natural disaster of the hurricane, they have to continue to deal with the, with the man-made disaster of the Jones Act and having to pay more money uh, for shipping goods back and forth from Puerto Rico to the mainland or anyplace else. And, you know, what's crazy is you read all these articles, obviously written by people who benefit from the Jones Act, as to how great the Jones Act is. And I've even read articles where they claim that Puerto Rico benefits from the Jones Act because, you know, of all these ships that are servicing these routes that are going back and forth to Puerto Rico, that having this strong U.S. merchant marine is good for Puerto Rico because of all the, all the shipping they do, which is complete nonsense because if it was good for Puerto Rico, if using U.S. ships was good for Puerto Rico, there wouldn't have to be a law requiring them to use U.S. ships. They would use them anyway. The fact that we need the Jones Act is proof that the Jones Act is not good for Puerto Rico. Because anything that's good for you, you're going to do on your own. 
you know, I hear the same nonsense argument with the minimum wage all the time. I hear people say, you know, employers are better off if they pay their workers more money because they're going to have lower turnover. Their employees are going to be more loyal. They're going to work harder. So if they just pay their workers more money, they'll actually make a bigger profit. So the minimum wage is good because it's forcing these employers to do something that actually makes them more money, which, of course, assumes that employers are a bunch of idiots. Because if employers believed that just raising wages to their unskilled workers was going to result in more income for them, you wouldn't have to be forced to do it. You would do it on your own. The government never has to force you to do something that you perceive will benefit you. Because if you perceive that it will benefit you, you will do it anyway. It's only when the government wants you to do something that you don't want to do. And why wouldn't you want to do something? Because you think you're worse off for doing it. So if the government is forcing you to do something that you wouldn't otherwise do, it's because doing it is bad for you. You'd be better off not doing it. That's why they need the law. That's why they need to punish you if you do it. Because obviously you don't want to do it. The only reason you're doing it is because of the law. So the people in Puerto Rico don't want to overpay to have their merchandise shipped on Jones Act compliant ships, which are ships that are built in America and crewed by Americans. They don't want to do that. They would rather use foreign ships with foreign workers because it's a lot cheaper, right? So the government is forcing them to use the Jones Act. And I, you know, I, 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 these Jones Act ships, and I'm reading some of these guys saying, oh, there's no problem. I don't know what the Puerto Ricans are complaining about. There's plenty of ships. There's no shortage of ships. It's not that there's a shortage of ships. It's just that the ships that they have to use are overpriced, that what they are charging to deliver their merchandise is too high. Look, the cost is so high. I was reading articles that uh, in Hawaii, when ranchers want to send cattle to the mainland, they put them on an airplane because it's too expensive to put them on a Jones Act ship. So, you know, these wealthy ranchers, yeah, they're able to fly their cattle around, you know, in airplanes to avoid... Uh, using U.S. ships. In fact, I read there's a lot of, you know, energy that gets transported and it's cheaper if you're in the Northeast, it's cheaper to import oil uh, from the Middle East coming across the Atlantic than to bring it up, let's say, uh, from Louisiana, uh, you know, on an American ship, even though the distance traveled is, is much shorter than bringing uh, oil over for Europe. It's still cheaper doing it that way because they don't want to use the U.S. ships. Well, the Puerto Ricans, they don't, have, they don't have a choice. They're stuck using these U.S. ships only because of this law. And to try to pretend that the Jones Act is actually benefiting Puerto Rico, to understand how they're benefiting from being forced to do something that they don't want to do and somehow being forced to overpay for goods. I mean, if you look at the, the price of, you know, milk or cornflakes or, you know, just take whatever the products are, and look at what they cost on islands near Puerto Rico and compared to Puerto Rico. I mean, the price of Puerto Rico is like double what they're paying on other islands. And not only is this bad for Puerto Ricans, but what about their tourist industry? Because, you know, one of the big things that tourists are looking for is the cost of meals while they're on vacation, the cost of food when you're eating in a restaurant. And if all the food is more expensive in Puerto Rico than in neighboring islands, what does that mean about the competition for tourist dollars? More tourists who are looking for a bargain vacation are not going to go to Puerto Rico. They're going to go to another island that can import products without having to use 
Jones Act compliant ships. So even though you would think a lot of Americans would want a vacation in Puerto Rico because they don't need a passport, their cell phone works, you have all these other advantages. It's not, you know, on price, Puerto Rico can't compete in large part because of the Jones Act. Now, another part of that is the U.S. minimum wage, but that's, a, but that's another issue. But the Jones Act alone is an important reason why Puerto Rico is not nearly as competitive as it should be. Puerto Rico should be making a lot more money off of tourism, and the main reason it's not is because of that Jones Act. So not only is it hurting the standard of living of the typical uh, resident, of Puerto Rico, but it's hurting business. It's hurting the incomes of people who might otherwise earn more money by having a greater number of tourists visiting the island every year. And in fact, if you look at the per capita income in Puerto Rico, I think it's about half of the poorest U.S. state. Yet despite that, their cost of living is higher than any U.S. state. And and so the people earn less, but they actually have to spend more on, on basic you know, goods uh, because of the Jones Act. So it was hurting Puerto Rico long before the, the hurricane came. It's just hurting them now because now you're you know, adding insult to injury because they have to deal with both the Jones Act and they got to deal with the hurricane. And especially since there's so much rebuilding that now needs to be done, obviously there's a lot more stuff that needs to be shipped into the island. And obviously, why would you want to artificially raise the shipping costs? You know, the one argument that does make some sense is when people say, well, we need to maintain the merchant marine because it's a national security issue. We need to make sure that we have this vibrant uh, fleet because, you know, if we're ever at war, you never know. I mean, we, we can't rely on foreign ships and there could be blockades or maybe they're our enemy. And how are you going to use those? And there is some sympathy for that argument. In fact, that was the argument that was made 100 years ago when they passed it. And of course, obviously, the Navy was far more important back then. I mean, we didn't even have the Air Force. We didn't have intercontinental ballistic missiles. We didn't have nuclear missiles. I mean, the Navy was your main defense. And so I could see the argument for having this strong civilian merchant marine that you know could be there in peacetime, but could be called into action in wartime. And so that was the purpose of this. Uh, But to the extent that that is the case, if you really want to make an argument that we need to subsidize the American shipping industry just so we have it in case there's a war, then let's do it under the Defense Department budget. The Defense Department should pay the cost. So in other words, they should be required, these ships should be required to ship merchandise based on globally competitive rates. And then the difference between that rate and the extra money that the U.S. shipping companies need to cover the higher costs associated with manufacturing and hiring in America, that extra cost should be borne by the overall population. It should be in the Defense Department's budget, and it should be paid for out of the general revenue. Everybody in America should pay for it, not the people who are unfortunate enough to live in an island like Puerto Rico. They shouldn't have to be paying for our national defense you know, or the people in Hawaii or the people in Alaska. I mean, everybody supposedly is going to benefit from a stronger Navy and a stronger national defense. So everybody should pay for it, not just the people who are being denied the ability to use foreign ships. And of course, you know, a lot of merchandise that is brought to the United States is brought on foreign ships, right? The Jones Act doesn't say 
that a Japanese or a Chinese ship can't take goods from Japan or China and transport them to America. They can do that. They just can't take goods from one U.S. port to another U.S. port. And see, that's the problem because no big ship is going to come over from China and go to Puerto Rico. Because once they've done that, then that's it. They can't go to another U.S. port. Why are they going to go to Puerto Rico? They can't. They got, they, they got to go to the mainland. So in order to get stuff to Puerto Rico, even if it's coming from China, everything has to be dropped off in a U.S. port, unloaded, reloaded back on a U.S. ship, and sent back to Puerto Rico. Right? So Puerto Rico disproportionately gets hurt by this because they can't get anything direct from a foreign ship. Other Americans can't because, they, you know, they, they can make once you make a, a stop. Now, of course, it would be great if a foreign ship could make a stop in a Florida and then keep going up the coast and, and, and unload stuff, you know, higher and higher up until it gets all the way to Maine. Right. But no, they have to unload it all. And then we have to put it on on trains or on trucks. You know, a lot of stuff ends up getting trucked which is bad for the environment, right? We're using more fuel, uh, more pollution. Why not just let these ships make multiple stops? I mean, it would be better for the environment. It would bring down the transportation costs, right? We'd have less, you know, crowded uh, streets and all, fewer auto accidents, right? There's a lot of things that would be accomplished if we just got rid of the Jones Act entirely, right? But if we're going to preserve it, let's at least exempt some of the uh, people that are the hardest hit, that are disproportionately impacted by the Jones Act, and that would be uh, people living in, in Puerto Rico.